0: Well, we make decisions all the time, don't we? What to wear, what to have for breakfast, whether to have breakfast. Um, I surveyed the young people for those decisions. Some decisions are easy. Um, We make them just like that, don't we? Hardly a moment's thought. Some decisions, though, are hard, and we wrestle with them, and we lie awake at night thinking about them, and we find ourselves being pulled in two completely opposite directions, sometimes between two right things and we just can't decide which one to do. But have you ever thought that God might have to make hard decisions? Have you ever thought that God might have to wrestle within himself as to what he should do? That might sound strange. But today in Exodus 32 we see God wrestling with a huge problem and we see him saying one thing and then changing his mind and saying another thing and it's strange. In this passage what is causing it all is that Israel treat God terribly and he's not sure how to respond and the passage is even confusing as we read it. God saying one thing, God saying another thing, but it is all there to help us see how huge the problem of our sin, our disobedience is to God. So let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 32, which was just read for us, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now these people here are the very same people who have just been rescued by God. And we've seen, haven't we, like a wedding, when Israel were asked, will you obey God? Will you be his people? Like at a wedding, they said, we will. We will do everything that the Lord has told us. But the wedding's not even over. Moses is still signing the register, so to speak. He's up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments in stone and Israel are getting impatient. How long will Moses be up there? Has he forgotten all about us? And it's that impatience, it's that lack of trust of God wanting to speed things up that leads them to sin. 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Aaron now because Moses is still up the mountain, and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing. And bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Now that's, that's worth noticing that Aaron has actually made this calf because he'll make an excuse later on that is far from him making it with a tool. Then they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They are replacing God with an idol, the very thing that he told them not to do. In fact, the first of the commandments. Don't look it up, but let me just refresh your memories. Exodus 20, verse 2, God said to them, I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Look out. Israel have just made an idol in the form of a cow and God is a jealous God. What will he do? Well, he's rightly angry with Israel. He wants to destroy them and start all over again with Moses. 32-9. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked doesn't mean like they've got a chiropractic problem. It's their refusal to bow before God. Stiff-necked. Proud. Verse 10, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, singular, he's talking about Moses, into a great nation. Here's the first problem for God. And you can see on your outline, there's a lot of problems for God in this section. But the first problem, should God destroy Israel for their disobedience? His promise was conditional, wasn't it? If you obey me. But what about the earlier promises to Abraham of a big nation? So Moses raises this with God and God changes his mind. Verse 11. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord and said, O Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that God brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever And God changes his mind. 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. God changes his mind. Now, I'm sure Israel are very happy about that. They have just escaped being destroyed. But what about you? Does that sound a bit strange to you that the God who does not change changes his mind? At the very least, you should feel a bit uncomfortable that God has just said one thing, he's threatened one thing, and now he's doing another thing. What is going on? There's a problem here, isn't there? God wants to destroy these people, but he also loves them. And that tension, that problem continues over into another problem. The problem of God's mercy, because now that God has changed his mind and now that he's decided to be merciful to them and not wipe them out, it gets worse. Look at what happens. Verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. See, Moses up the mountain was trying to say, God, don't be angry. He hadn't seen what was going on. Now that he's seen what's going on, he's angry for 20. And he took the calf they'd made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Now Moses is angry. He challenges Aaron, his brother, as to what's gone on. And look at Aaron's response. Don't be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now this is, this is, If this wasn't so serious, it would be funny, wouldn't it? This is like a pathetic three-year-old, you know? There's crayon all over the wall. There's a three-year-old sitting next to the wall. There's a crayon in their hand. You say, what happened? And they say, did you draw on the wall? No. Now, you might expect that a three-year-old might think that they can get away with that. But who does Aaron think he's kidding? I threw the gold into the fire and out popped this calf. It's the stupidest thing you've heard. But that is what sin does. The moment we disobey God, we start to make excuses. You're in an argument and it's the other person's fault, isn't it? You steal from work and you start to justify it because they weren't treating you right. You leave your husband or your wife and then you start to put the blame on them and it was their fault. It's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam... Blamed Eve. Eve blamed the snake. The very nature of sin is the moment that we are involved, we can't see clearly anymore. We can't see how stupid our excuses are. I threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. It's the most stupid excuse you've heard. And yet I wonder if we could look at our own excuses that we make whether some of the stuff that we say is just as absurd. Here with Israel, though, do you see the problem with God's mercy? He's just let Israel off the hook. Seems to make the problem worse because now they're just making excuses. If their disobedience is not punished, how will they ever see how serious it is? And so as you read on, the more crazy and complicated this chapter gets, Let me give you some examples. Moses was pleading for God to have mercy on Israel, but then in the next few verses, he orders 3,000 of them to be destroyed as punishment. God was going to punish them, but we just saw he's changed his mind and let them off. But then later in the next chapter, he sends a plague anyway in judgment. And then in verse chapter 33, verse 3, God says he's not going to go with them anymore. They can still go into the promised land, but they're on their own because if he goes with them, he'll destroy them. Then Moses begs God to go with them, and in 33, 14, he changes his mind, and he says, I will go with you. It's all over the place. And in chapter 33, verse 5, we see why. Sorry, 34, verse 5. Chapter 34, verse 5. It's all to do with who God is. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, Yahweh, the Lord. And as he passed in front of Moses, this is what he proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, And faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. If you've been finding this chapter a bit confusing, this is the key to understanding it all. It is all to do with attention within God himself. By nature, God is forgiving. He wants to show mercy to people. And yet by his very nature, he is also a God who is fair and he must punish evil. On the one hand, he's compassionate. He knows what people are going through. He knows what you're going through. He knows the hardest things you go through. He knows what Israel here are going through and he feels for them. He's a gracious God. He wants to forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin The worst things you've done in your life, God wants to forgive. The worst things that the nation of Israel have done, even their idolatry, he wants to forgive. But that's only one side of who he is. Middle of verse 7, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. See, God is also fair. He wants to do what is right. Imagine if every single court case that came through the district court here in Dubbo, imagine the judge just let everyone off. That wouldn't be right, would it? You've just broken into five houses. That's okay. You're forgiven. Go free. You just killed someone. That's okay. You're forgiven. No jail term. Go free. That's not justice. If that's what was happening, everyone would just do whatever they wanted. And that's the problem of these chapters. Should God punish or should God forgive? It's in his nature to do both. And that problem continues right through the Old Testament and it reaches its climax in the death of Jesus. Look, if God was in turmoil here with what to do with the nation of Israel, imagine the turmoil he was in with the death of Jesus because it is the same issue In the death of Jesus, those two things are involved. God's justice, he wants to punish sin. And God's forgiveness, he wants to forgive people. And in Jesus' death, both those things happen. In Jesus' death, sin is forgiven. Because by his death, he bought our forgiveness. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. But in Jesus' death... Sin is also punished. He took God's judgment for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And as followers of Jesus, we need to keep both those things in tension in our lives. They're both true. And they're both part of who our God is. You can't have one without the other. We need to have them both. Have you ever seen one of those huge um, hanging suspension bridges? Maybe you've walked across one of the hanging rope bridges on a bushwalk. Maybe you've driven across one of the big bridges in a car where there's this huge wire and it's, it's a cable and it's supported at each end and it hangs there in tension and the bridge hangs off the wire. You break the wire on either end and the whole bridge falls. It's a bit like that here. We need to hold God's anger at sin. And his mercy and forgiveness intention. They're both there. You let go of one and everything comes undone. See, there's some people who just see God as an angry God. They let go of his forgiveness. Not everyone, but some people find it hard to think that God can forgive or they think that it's wrong for God to forgive. Some people even use it as an excuse not to come to God they focus in on God's anger and say I can't believe in a God who'd be angry if that's you yet for you it might be easy to see that God is angry it's easy to feel overwhelmed by your guilt perhaps you might even think how could God forgive me it's good to understand that God is angry at sin but that's not all he is He's also gracious. He loves to forgive people. God wants to have you as his child and overflow his mercy into your life and through the death of Jesus, your sin can be forgiven. God's anger and his forgiveness, you need to hold on to them both. There's other people, though, who are quick to think of God as forgiving but they let go of God's anger. They think that God is forgiving and somehow, therefore, we don't have to worry about his anger anymore. We don't have to worry about sin. If that's you, for you it's easy to say God's forgiven me. Then you make excuses for your own sin. You live as if sin doesn't matter. You do what you want. It's good that you understand God's forgiveness. That's great, but you need to remember that God hates idolatry. He hates it. There is nothing that makes God more angry than when we replace Him with other things. You want to find out what your idol is? Just think about what is the most important thing in your life. If it's not God, that's your idol. God versus pleasure. Which do you choose? God versus a boyfriend or a girlfriend which do you choose? God versus your comfort, which do you choose? Maybe money is your God, you live for money, you dream about money, you make plans around your money, you find your security in your money, that's idolatry. Maybe school's your God, look that sounds weird but Maybe that's what your life is about, performing well at school and getting good works. And if you can just do that, life will be secure. If you go well, you feel good about yourself. If you go badly, you feel bad about yourself. Maybe your work is your God. You live for your work. You make plans around your work. You find your identity in your work. Who you are is your work. That's idolatry. What's the most important thing to you? Now look, our excuses might not be as dumb as Aaron's. I threw some gold into the fire and this calf popped out. But they are still pretty dumb excuses. I'm doing it for my kids. I'm just doing it till I get the house paid off. Then I'll reorientate my priorities. God wants me to work hard. It's only a car. Look, you know what you're living for. You know what the most important thing in your life is. God knows what the most important thing in your life is. And if you are not living for God, if you are living for something else, God hates that. Makes him angry. As followers of Jesus, we need to hold on to both those truths. God hates sin. We need to hate it. God is forgiving. And so we cling to Jesus and we approach God confidently, knowing that no matter what we've done, we're forgiven. And we rejoice in his mercy. And so all this turmoil in Exodus 32, it's because God loves his people and he wants what's best for them. And it causes him angst. When they turn away from Him. So I beg you this morning, do things God's way. It's the best way. Trust Him, even when it seems like He's taking longer than you want Him to. Obey Him, even if you don't understand why. Don't go chasing other things. And when you fail in any of those things which we do, realise how serious it is and come to his son Jesus for forgiveness. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Let's pray. Father God, if Exodus is a book all about you introducing yourself to your people, then we learn some deep things about you here in this chapter. And we do thank you that you are a God who is fair and just, and you don't leave the guilty unpunished. Thank you that there will come a day when you will call everyone to account and the injustices of this world will be fixed and wrongs will be righted and you will bring in a new creation where everything is fair. But Father, if we were to face that day alone, that would be terrifying because we have all failed you. We've all done things that make you angry. And so thank you that you are also a God who's forgiving. And Father, we pray that we'd hold on to those two things, that as we see your justice and your hatred of sin, we'd be convicted of our own sin. But we pray that that might throw us onto your mercy, that we'd cling to the cross of Jesus and trust in him. And as we live our lives day to day, help us to be reminded of those two things, that we'd hate sin, but that we rejoice in your forgiveness. We pray that we would not be like Israel. We pray that we would learn by their mistakes so that we would serve you faithfully. Amen.